0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yachtalk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov, And I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 36 on pulmonary embolisms and pulmonary hypertension. This episode is going to be all about vascular pulmonology, as in the commonly tested diseases which affect the pulmonary arteries and veins. We'll be spending a lot of time on pulmonary embolism, then a little time with pulmonary hypertension, and a quick case on vasculitides, which can affect the lungs. Let's get started. Okay, so our first patient is a 60-year-old female, past medical history of stage 2 breast cancer, who comes into the ER after sudden onset shortness of breath and chest pain when she stood up from sitting. For the past five days, she's been binging Breaking Bad and has barely moved from her chair because the writing is just so good. Well, I, I do have to agree, it's probably the best show ever written. Anyway, our patient, who is a never smoker, by the way, has the following vitals a normal temperature and blood pressure, a heart rate of 110, a respiratory rate of 22, and an SpO2 of 92% on room air. Pulmonary and cardiac exams are normal. What are the main diagnoses that you're thinking about here? I'm really torn between two with a presentation like this. I'm thinking acute MI or pulmonary embolism. Her cancer history definitely puts her at elevated risk for both, though PE is much more likely than MI, and she doesn't seem to have other MI risk factors. Before we get into diagnosing our patient, what exactly is a PE and what are the main risk factors? A pulmonary embolism specifically refers to a thromboembolism which cleaves off from the original thrombus and travels to the pulmonary arterial system. And that results in loss of blood flow to the clotted area. The main risk factors are long periods of immobilization, a history of cancer, and a history of other clotting events like deep vein thrombosis or another PE. And how do they like to get at this on the test? The main clues are patients who either just had surgery or have been on bed rest or just returned from international travel. Both get at a patient who hasn't been moving a lot. The same goes for a wheelchair-bound patient as well. Sometimes they like to double down and give you a patient who just had surgery to remove a cancer. That is a lot of good info, but is there a standard tool for us to determine how likely it is that this patient has a PE? The modified WELLS score helps us determine whether or not a PE is likely. What do we need to know about the modified Wells criteria for the test? Briefly, there are seven criteria, each with a certain point value, and if the points add up to greater than four, then PE is likely. The main ones to know are that hemoptysis or cancer history are each one point, and previous DVT slash PE, tachycardia, or recent surgery or immobilization are all worth one and a half points. Usually, the test questions won't give an obvious DVT picture, as in unilateral leg swelling, erythema, and pain but clinical signs of DBT add a whopping three points for wells. What's the last and most vague criterion, which usually results in a score greater than four? That would be to quote, alternate diagnosis less likely than PE, which is worth three points. This basically means if there's a high clinical suspicion of PE and one of the other criteria, then you should treat it as PE on the test and real life. Great tip. How would you approach our patient's well score? So I would give her a score of seven, since she has a history of cancer, one point, heart rate greater than 100, 1.5 points, recent immobilization, one and a half points, and I'd say there isn't a good alternate diagnosis, three more points. So all that added up is seven, her likelihood of PE is definitely high. So now what do we do with that information? We enter the PE management algorithm. Ooh, sounds like the twilight zone. It's just like the twilight zone because it's confusing until someone tells you how it works. Beautiful analogy. So what are our options when we suspect PE? So the first thing we actually should have done right away. With our patients tachypnea and hypoxia, we would want to start oxygen and IV fluids. Now that we've assessed our clinical suspicion to be high for pulmonary embolism, we would actually decide whether or not to give anticoagulation before we move on to diagnostics. Before we get into that, What would we have done if we had clinical suspicion of PE, but a well score below or at the cutoff of four? In that case, we would get a D-dimer test, which is highly sensitive, but not specific for PE. That essentially means that if the D-dimer comes back low, there's basically no chance that PE is the correct diagnosis. Usually D-dimer isn't the answer on the test, but instead a hint that they'll use to point you in the right direction. Another great tip. Back to our patient with a high likelihood of PE. Should we start her on anticoagulation? Yes, we should, because she does not have any history of bleeding events, peptic ulcer disease, or brain mets, which are relative or absolute contraindications to anticoagulation. If that were the case, then we would image first and then anticoagulate. Our patient can be started on IV heparin, a low molecular weight heparin like anoxaparin, or an oral anticoagulant like apixaban, though IV heparin is usually the answer on the exam. In which situation would you definitely not use any of those fancy anticoagulants? That would be in someone with severe renal insufficiency, specifically a creatinine clearance less than 30. In that case, you would only be able to use IV heparin and then transition them to warfarin. Good to know. Now that we've started our patient on IV heparin, what's our next step in the PE management algorithm? Now we want to get some imaging to confirm our diagnosis. The best choice is a CT angiography, which they'll call a few different things on the test. CT pulmonary angiography, CT angiogram, or a CT angiogram of the, of the chest, but they all mean the same thing. If the patient has poor renal function or is pregnant, then a ventilation perfusion scan, aka VQ scan, is the preferred diagnostic test. What are some classic imaging findings which would support a diagnosis of PE? So starting with chest x-ray, this image modality can be completely normal, but might show an effusion, parenchymal infiltrates, or atelectasis. The classic signs, which are actually pretty rare and not worth describing, are Hampton's humps, Westermark's sign, and Paula's sign. The classic finding on a CT angiogram, or CTA, is a wedge-shaped opacity corresponding to the area of infarction caused by the occluded vessel, as well as a pleural effusion from increased hydrostatic pressure. A VQ scan would show a ventilation perfusion mismatch in the area of the PE. What exactly is a VQ mismatch? So we'll cover this more in our episode on hypoxemia, but a ventilation-perfusion mismatch means that either there is an area where blood is getting to but air is not, called a shunt, or there is an area where the air is getting to but blood is not, called dead space. A PE causes a dead space mismatch because the affected area of lung has air but not blood getting to it. Now that we know all that, let's say our patient's CTA shows a wedge-shaped infarct and pleural effusion. What are some other lab findings we would expect in our patient with a PE? So if we were to order an arterial blood gas, ABG, we would expect a high AA gradient for the same reason that we had a VQ mismatch. There's an area of lung where no blood is arriving, so there will be less oxygen in the arterial blood than normal. The patient's tachypnea will also result in a respiratory alkalosis over time since she's breathing off excess CO2 and a compensatory excretion of bicarb ensues. And finally, what are some other diagnostic findings other than chest x-ray, CTA, or VQ scan? The most common EKG finding for PE is just sinus tachycardia, but the S1Q3T3 sign might show up on the test. Note, this just means there's a strain on the right heart and isn't specific for PE. Echocardiography might show right ventricular and atrial dilation, depending on the size of the clot as well. Wow, that was a long but super high-yield case. And that was just the basics of pulmonary embolism. For our next case, we have a 70-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and coronary artery disease, as well as prostate cancer. And he's brought in already intubated by EMS after being found at home unconscious with a weak pulse and agonal breathing. Vitals show a blood pressure of 85 over 45 and a heart rate of 125. Exam reveals cold and clammy extremities and a left foot ulcer. How would you describe this patient's state and what are some potential causes? I would say this patient is in shock, given that he has hemodynamic instability leading to decreased consciousness. Now would be a good time to go check out our shock episode if you haven't, it. but it sounds like this patient has risk factors for cardiogenic shock from MI, obstructive shock from massive PE, and distributive shock from a septic wound. Only hypovolemic shock doesn't seem likely since he has no signs of hemorrhage or other fluid loss, and his extremities are wet, not dry. Great, so what do we wanna do for our patient immediately to determine the cause of his shock? We'd wanna start some IV fluids and get a right heart catheterization to determine his hemodynamics. Perfect, so let's say we start IV fluids and see no improvement in blood pressure. His right heart cath shows the following, a central venous pressure of 13 and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of four. How do you interpret those findings? It sounds like the main insult is happening between the right and left heart. The CVP is elevated above the normal max of eight, suggesting backup of blood. The PCWP, which represents left atrial preload, is low, so blood isn't reaching the left heart effectively. Note, though, that PCWP can actually be normal in PE, but will always be elevated in cardiogenic shock. So if the CVP is elevated in a shock patient and the PCWP is either normal or decreased, it must be an obstructive cause like PE. Perfect walkthrough of a tough concept there, Ben. What are some other signs and symptoms we might expect for our patient with a suspected massive pulmonary embolism? Since the PE is blocking large segments of the vasculature, we would expect elevated pulmonary arterial pressure from reflexive vasoconstriction and resulting right ventricular dysfunction from working against increased pressure. This can lead to elevated jugular venous pressure and new right bundle branch block on EKG. So ultimately, how can this lead to mortality for our patient if we don't act quickly? Unfortunately, PEs large enough to cause hemodynamic instability result in high mortality rates. The rapid right heart failure can quickly turn into left ventricular failure from decreased cardiac output, bradycardia, and finally nervous system collapse. That sounds pretty scary. What can we do to prevent the patient from going down that road? In massive PE with hemodynamic instability, we want to confirm the diagnosis first with a STAT CTA followed by fibrinolysis with TPA unless there are contraindications such as recent surgery or life-threatening bleed. Wow, definitely wanna avoid those big PEs. What are some other dangerous forms of PE and their etiologies? So there's fat embolism, usually after fracture of a long bone or orthopedic surgery, which results in acute onset respiratory distress, neurologic changes, and a petechial rash one to three days after the trauma or surgery. The other type is venous air embolism, which is usually iatrogenic from central venous catheters or positive pressure ventilation. And you would manage the patient by putting them in the left lateral decubitus position while supplying hyperbaric oxygen. Very interesting and potentially deadly diseases, Ben. Let's get away from all this clotting and talk about another way the lung vasculature can be diseased. All right, so now we have a 37-year-old female who comes in with a year of progressively worsening dyspnea on exertion, and now she's feeling lightheaded even when walking around the house. Her vitals are normal, and exam reveals a loud S2 and a strong peristernal impulse. What do you think is causing this otherwise healthy patient's dyspnea? So given the patient's age, it's unlikely ischemic heart failure, but it could be something like hypertrophic or dilated cardiomyopathy. Another diagnosis high on my differential is pulmonary hypertension, given her age and exam findings. Before we delve into her exam, what is pulmonary hypertension? Pulmonary hypertension is exactly what it sounds like, an elevated pressure in the pulmonary vasculature. It is usually asymptomatic for a long time until it presents with symptoms such as exertional dyspnea, fatigue, syncope, or angina. There are many different ways it can develop, so there's actually a special classification system. Can you walk us through the five classifications of pulmonary hypertension causes and paint us a mental image of how to remember them? Absolutely. So group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, and I picture drawing little ones as little arteries. Group two is from left heart disease, so I picture drawing a two and its mirror image to make a heart. Group three is from chronic lung diseases such as COPD, and if you write a three and its mirror image, that kind of looks like a pair of lungs. And then group four is from chronic thromboembolic disease, also called CTEF, and you can picture two mirrored fours as a person's legs as a reminder of DVT slash PE. Group five is just from other causes, such as sarcoidosis. What a beautiful drawing I have in my head now. Thank you, Yak. Can you explain what pulmonary arterial hypertension is, since we already have a pretty good understanding of the other conditions? Sure. So PAH is specifically pulmonary hypertension from intimal hyperplasia of the pulmonary arteries. Whereas other groups are caused by factors extrinsic to the arteries themselves, PAH is intrinsic. The most common cause is idiopathic in reproductive age females, but PAH may be associated with conditions like systemic sclerosis. Now back to our patient. What are these physical exam findings about? They also point to pulmonary hypertension as a diagnosis. The prominent S2 is likely from a loud pulmonic valve pushing against an elevated pulmonary pressure. The peristernal impulse that you mentioned is probably a right ventricular heave, which indicates RV hypertrophy from chronically working against higher pressure. What are some other physical exam findings that might be seen as the disease progresses? Essentially, signs of right-sided hypertrophy and failure. Tricuspid regurge might develop as the valve is stretched, and JVD, peripheral edema, and ascites might result from decreased right ventricular function. Yikes. How can we diagnose our patient before all of those complications pop up? We would probably want to start with echocardiography, which can give an inexact measurement of pulmonary artery pressure. It can also rule out other conditions on our differential, such as hypertrophic or dilated cardiomyopathy. A pulmonary artery cath would give us a more exact measurement of the pressures, but isn't always necessary. Let's say we get an echo which demonstrates increased pulmonary artery pressure and thickening of the vasculature. What can we do for our patient? So it sounds like she has group one pulmonary hypertension, as in PAH. You can use medications called endothelin antagonists, such as Bosentan, PDE5 inhibitors like sildenafil, or prostaglandin analogs like isloprost to dilate the arterial vessels. Note, however, these are not high yield on the test, and they mostly just want you to get the diagnosis and know the signs of pulmonary hypertension. For all other groups of pH, you wouldn't give these medications, and instead, you would treat the underlying condition. An incredible delve into a tough condition. Let's wrap up this episode with a case on another challenging diagnosis. All right, Ben. So for our last case, we have a 40-year-old male who comes into the ED with two days of dyspnea and hemoptysis, preceded by two months of intermittent fever and sinus pain. His vitals are normal. Exam reveals patchy rails in all lung fields. Basic labs reveal a hemoglobin of 9, a white count of 14,000, and a creatinine of 2.2. What condition are you most suspicious for in this patient? I would say that I'm worried that this patient has the vasculitis granulomatosis with polyangiitis abbreviated GPA. Nice. And what gives you that inkling? The classic three vascular systems involved in this autoimmune inflammatory disorder are those found in the upper respiratory, lower respiratory, and renal organs. His sinus pain could indicate rhinosinusitis and his elevated creatinine is likely from glomerulonephritis. The dyspnea and hemoptysis are from inflammation of lower respiratory vessels. Also, GPA is most common in middle-aged men, such as our patient here. Nice. What are some other signs and symptoms that we might see in GPA? Upper respiratory involvement might cause otitis as well, along with a saddle nose deformity. Renal involvement could cause hematuria, though it's more likely to be microscopic. And finally, skin involvement could result in levita reticularis and ulcer formation. What are some other diagnostic findings that we might expect for our patient with GPA? A chest x-ray would likely show cavitations and or nodules, which would explain the rails that we're hearing on exam. And also, qualitative autoantibody analysis would likely reveal a positive ANCA. Nice. What other vasculitis can present very similarly to GPA? That would be good pasture syndrome, which results from autoantibody production against a basement membrane protein found in renal and alveolar cells. The main differences are that the upper respiratory system is not involved in good pastures, and chest imaging would show infiltrates instead of cavitations, and the disease presents in young adult males for good pastures. Nice. And how do you treat either GPA or good pastures? The main treatment involves either corticosteroids or immunomodulators like cyclophosphamide to halt the autoimmune process. And with that, we can make like blood in the left heart and move away from the pulmonary vasculature. That was the single nerdiest joke that I've ever heard, but it filled my heart, Yakov. Thank you, Ben. Tune in next time, everyone.